0: Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Books. I love, love, love fresh flowers. I love how beautiful they are. I love how it brings like a modicum of spring, especially when New York is still trying to figure out if spring is actually going to happen. And that is why I love Books. And this Mother's Day, it's even more perfect that books is available because you can actually give mom all of the flowers she deserves. And we all know she deserves the best. So send her farm fresh flowers from books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, when you shop at books, you can get 25% off your entire books purchase. And not only are you getting 25% off, you're getting access to beautiful floral arrangements that everybody likes because books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers that are grown on the side of a volcano. How's that for commitment? Books has modern designs and unique flowers that you can't find anywhere else. And ordering from Books is simple. You go online, you pick the delivery date, and boom, you're done. So Mother's Day is May 12th, so don't miss out on the chance to thank your mom or the mothers in your life that you love and order your books now. And with 25% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your aunt, even your grandma and to me. So go to books.com and use promo code strict for 25% off. That's B O U Q S.com promo code strict books, promo code strict.
1: Hey there, Strict Scrutiny listeners. Before we get into today's episode, we've got some breaking news in the case involving Kate Cox, a Texas woman who's seeking to terminate a non-viable pregnancy, something that her doctors believe is necessary to preserve her health and future fertility. As we've discussed on this show, although Texas has one of the most restrictive abortion regimes in the country, it also purports to contain a medical exception which, again, Kate Cox's doctors believe should apply in this case. However, Texas officials have decided that they know better than doctors. We've invoked Gilead ad nauseum on this show in the past, but mostly we've been thinking about it prospectively, like where we're headed. But... What's happening now in Texas really does feel like it's ripped out of the pages of The Handmaid's Tale. Texas officials are literally doing everything in their power to force Kate Cox to remain pregnant against the advice of her doctors, against her wishes, and regardless of the consequences to her health and her family and her future. And it's absolutely heartbreaking and completely enraging.
2: So let's give some brief background for our listeners. So Kate Cox is 31 years old. She has two small children. She is pregnant with a wanted pregnancy. But about two weeks ago, she was informed that her pregnancy has full trisomy 18, a condition that causes multiple structural abnormalities and where the fetus has virtually no chance of survival. She has also made multiple trips to the emergency room in the last few weeks because of severe cramping and leaking. And her OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist have advised her that carrying this pregnancy to term could jeopardize her health and her future fertility. She has had two previous cesarean sections, so she's at high risk of uterine rupture. And again, she has two young kids to care for. She says she wants to have more kids. And in light of all of this, her doctors believe that the best medical path forward for her is for her to terminate this non-viable pregnancy.
1: As we covered on an earlier episode, the Texas Supreme Court is currently considering the scope and substance of Texas's medical exception provisions in a case that's called Zorowski versus the state of Texas. However, due to the exigency of her circumstances, Kate Cox cannot wait for a decision in the Zaroski case. Accordingly, Cox and her husband, Justin, along with their physician, Dr. Damla Carson, have filed a request for a temporary restraining order in a Texas trial court. And in doing so, they were represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights and Molly Duane, who has been a guest on the show. Last Thursday, the trial court granted that request for a temporary restraining order, saying, quote, I am going to grant the temporary restraining order for the Coxes and Dr. Carson, the idea that Ms. Cox wants so desperately to be a parent and this law may have her lose that ability is shocking and would be a genuine miscarriage of justice. So I will be signing the order and it will be processed and sent out today. End quote.
2: So the order that the trial judge signed purported to both permit this abortion and to enjoin the enforcement of Texas's abortion prohibitions against Dr. Carson and against anyone else involved in providing this, again, medically necessary abortion. But later, the same day that the Texas trial court issued the temporary restraining order, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sent, honestly, a genuinely deranged letter to the hospitals where Dr. Carson practices, overtly threatening those hospitals and Dr. Carson with both prosecution and civil liability under the Texas Bounty Hunter Law, SB 8. Here's just a brief excerpt from that letter. Quote, The TRO granted by the Travis County District Judge purporting to allow an abortion to proceed will not insulate hospitals, doctors, or anyone else from civil and criminal liability for violating Texas's abortion laws. The TRO will expire long before the statutes of limitations for violating Texas's abortion laws expires. I'm going to channel Leah for a minute and just highlight the perverseness of Ken Paxton threatening liability under SB 8 when... Cast your memory back, the Supreme Court said that state officials could not be sued under SB-8 since they had no role in enforcing it. And yet here Ken Paxton is using it, wielding it as a weapon. It is just maddening.
1: Ken Paxton wasn't content to just threaten doctors with criminal and civil liability. He then filed a mandamus petition in the Texas Supreme Court together with an emergency motion for temporary relief asking the Texas Supreme Court to stay the trial court order, arguing that the trial court abused its discretion in finding that Kate Cox should be able to receive her medically necessary abortion. He said that actually the abortion isn't medically necessary at all and that the state of Texas will be the one to suffer, quote, irreparable harm, the permanent loss of human life if plaintiffs are permitted to obtain an unlawful abortion before an evidentiary hearing can be held. End quote.
2: And at 9 p.m. on Friday night, the Texas Supreme Court issued an administrative stay of the trial court's order, meaning the trial court's order is currently not in effect. And to translate, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that she has to stay pregnant. She needs to terminate this pregnancy. Her doctors believe she needs to terminate this pregnancy, but the Texas State Supreme Court says she must remain pregnant, just like let that sink in.
1: Not just historians, also physicians. Right.
2: In the order Friday night, the you-must-stay-pregnant order, the court said it wasn't actually ruling on the merits of either motion, but there's been radio silence since then, and we're recording right now on Sunday afternoon. So we will see what this week brings But Texas is asking for an evidentiary hearing. So there's a specter of these judges like holding a hearing on whether in their infinite wisdom, these physicians, scientists, historians, all the things they think they are, (laughs) they think this woman should be allowed to get this abortion as her condition continues to deteriorate. It's just enraging.
1: Honestly, I do not know how this does not prompt Texas women to head to the polls. I mean, Ken Paxton is very definitely going to run to be governor of Texas. And I don't know how this doesn't enrage any woman of voting age. I mean, whether you believe abortion is immoral or what, I mean, this is a medical decision. And Ken Paxton, in his infinite wisdom, has decided that he knows better than a physician. Like, He didn't go to medical school. Like none of these people have gone to medical school except the actual physicians here, and it still doesn't matter. Like I mean, these exceptions are farcical at this point, and you can't get one. And this culture of life literally wants to keep her pregnant now, perhaps and likely preventing her from becoming pregnant in the future as she wishes to do. I
2: know. Yeah, it, it is so galling. You know, in particular as you just mentioned, Melissa. Right. This is. The Paxton's of the world and of our kind of political lives claim that they care about life, right? That that is motivating their behavior. But I, honestly, it has to be- It's control. Honestly, it's a culture no of one, control. Yes, no one should credit for a second that this is about promoting life in light of the conduct on display in this case, right? Literally what this woman wants to do is not to die, to be able to care for her kids, maybe to have more kids, right? That's all about life. And these officials don't seem to give a shit about any of that and to care only about one thing, which is elevating the fetus above all else. And to your point about the emptiness of these exceptions, Melissa, I mean, Americans really should be, I think, Texans, but Americans more broadly because this is not just Ken Paxton, right? No, Pakistan, it's true. Right? Like, yeah. He does stand in for a Republican Party that does not seem interested in actually having abortion policy that contains meaningful exceptions. Like they say they believe in exceptions for medical emergencies and rape. Sometimes they do. Not always, but many of them do. And that's because they have to politically because Americans overwhelmingly support yes. those exceptions. But this is the most compelling possible case for an exception. And it's not enough because they don't actually believe in exceptions.
3: Well, I mean, And
1: the trauma that she's experiencing yeah. literally having to put her life and her family's future in the hands of the texas supreme court its just again everyone should be pushing back on this whole idea that this is the party of life this is a culture of life this is not pro-life at all i mean if you were genuinely pro-life you wouldn't be doing this if you're genuinely pro-life you would evince broad support for parental leave and other policies that support families, but but you don't. I mean, like, it's just absolutely bonkers. Like yeah. this whole culture of the pro-life movement is nested in this ethic of neoliberalism that, that it is essentially about like making families do everything by themselves without any government support. And that essentially means making women do everything. Like the whole point is controlling women and keeping them bound to the home and to the family and to this role as wife, And mother, and that's that's what it's about.
2: And it just this saga just lays all of that bare. So that's sort of ideology and a lot of politics and maybe it's not watches. all there
1: because like i mean they want her to be a wife and mother but on their terms not right. hers she wants to be a mother again she wants to care yeah. for her kids she might want to get pregnant again they're just like no you're gonna like you're gonna stay pregnant for as long as we tell you to stay pregnant yeah. and you don't, you have no say in any of this i mean yeah that's the part that's drawing it's like like we're going to impose this upon you impose this status this Health consequence, all of it, yeah. on you, and you don't get to say anything about right. it. Like we get to, that's on the our culture yeah. of life. Yeah, yeah. Bro life, not pro life.
2: So I think that that it obviously is a case that really touches these much deeper themes in our law and our politics. Um, and but maybe let's just end on kind of like the human level, which is that no one should have to go through what no Kay one. Cox is going through right now, and we hope that you are able to get the care that you need and soon.
4: She spoke. Not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity, she said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks.
2: Hello and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We are your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw.
5: I'm Leah Littman, modeling the Time Person of the Year photo shoot.
2: We should describe Leah's attire for (laughs) the audio listeners.
5: This is Melissa, and I just wanted you to know that this
1: is partly my doing. I told Leah she should dress up like Taylor Swift on the Time Magazine cover, and so right now she has a stuffed cat draped around her... (laughs) Neck, and she's wearing a black turtleneck leotard, and it's giving and some Taylor. lipstick, it's, which it's, and a really red color. lip, a which
5: I don't usually do, a and a mm-hmm. large stuffed hat nope. as well. So we went all in. I think this is really where us being an audio medium really limits <laughs> us. Mm-hmm. So stay like, tuned for the new year, listeners. Serving. We may have some treats in store for you
2: for all the senses, all of them,
5: <laughs> for all of your senses. <laughs> We are already unhinged, and it's not even two minutes in. (laughs) But that's not the only treat we
1: have in store for you today, listeners, that audio delight of this visual feast that Leah is serving. We also have some recaps of the court's oral arguments in the cases that they heard last week, and then we will get to some court culture, and we're going to be focused a lot on state Supreme Court. So grab a water bottle and get hydrated, because we're going to go deep. First up are the recaps, and we're going to begin with the big tax case, Moore versus the United States, or as some like to say, mo-moneyed interest (laughs) versus the United States. Thank you. I'll be here all week.
2: There's more to come. Stay tuned. (laughs) So before we get into the actual case, we wanted to go back through some kind of useful context or background. In 2023, we're just starting to take stock as the year draws to a close. And in that last year, as a result of some great reporting by ProPublica, along with the New York Times and others, we learned that at least some Supreme Court justices have a lot of billionaire friends who give the justices lots of stuff that only billionaires can offer. Personal jet trips, home renovation and tuition assistance for family (laughs) members, luxury (laughs) lodgings, what have you.
5: As you do. This, as I mean, as this friends happens. do. It's not unconstitutional to have friends. Indeed. Friendship At the same is beautiful. It is. We also and know um, that the conservative legal movement and Republican Party more generally have benefited a ton from huge donations from the mega rich. Um, more money, no problems. Like Leonard Leo's billion dollar new fund that came about through a contribution from Bar Syed or the sheer amount of money the Kochs have thrown into elections.
1: Or the amount of money that Illinois billionaire Richard Uline, he's the guy who owns Uline, which is that company that sells packaging materials. He's contributed tons of money to the Restore America PAC and also to the effort to amend Ohio's ballot initiative procedures to prevent Ohioans from voting to preserve abortion rights. So I mean, the TLDR of all of this is that this case really brings together the Republican Party's principal passions in life appointing judges, limiting multiracial democracy, consolidating wealth, and tax cuts. Because here, the party challenging the tax is essentially asking the court to give a pretty massive tax cut to those who have the flexibility and the liquidity to hold their wealth in unrealized pools of money.
5: This is also the case where one of the lawyers for the challengers is David Rifkin, who wore his journalist hat when Sam Alito gave him a several hours long interview off the record about the Supreme Court. Rifkin recently co-wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed arguing that the Supreme Court's new ethics code is awesome and fixed everything. The title of that piece was, quote, The Justices' Ethics Code Rebukes Their Critics. Very unbiased opinion. Are you predicting? Are you predicting?
2: Is that a prediction? <laughs> did, it, did it fix everything or did it confirm that everything was already perfect and didn't both? Really need to be fixed? Both. Okay. Yeah. It both. It's wow. It's an alternative argument. Oh, galaxy yeah. brain. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that author, Rivkin, did not actually argue this case, but he was on the briefs and he is definitely one of the petitioner's lawyers.
1: That's restraint case. <laughs> credit where credit is due. He didn't actually yeah. show up in court to argue this.
2: Or just under reading the room just a tiny bit. Maybe this it's is one that would be better handled by someone else. Whatever the reason, that's essentially the backdrop to the case. And as to this case, the theory in Moore is in many ways more important than the actual facts of Moore. So uh, we're going to introduce the theory as such and explain it with reference to the facts. Although, as we'll get into, there turns out to be some uncertainty about the facts. Because, of course, there is. Because there is nothing this court loves more than deciding fake cases with fake facts with very, very real implications for our constitutional system. But to continue laying the groundwork, um, in their petition for certiorari, the petitioners asked the court to hear this case because they said their theory would prevent Congress from adopting a wealth tax in the future. The case itself, again, as we'll explain, actually involves a relatively minor provision of a federal tax law enacted in 2017, but the petitioners were very explicit in framing the case as being fundamentally about the prospect of Congress enacting a wealth tax down the road. They basically argued that it was critical that the court take the case and side with them to prevent Congress from doing just that. So that's all what we mean when we say the implications of this case and its theory of realized income could be really, really important way beyond the facts of this case.
1: The question presented in this case is about the meaning of the 16th Amendment, which says that quote, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. End quote. That amendment was a response to an 1895 court decision, Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. And there, the court, incidentally, the same court that later decided Plessy versus Ferguson, struck down a provision of the Wilson-Gorman Tariff Act that imposed an income tax, and they struck it down on the ground that such an income tax constituted an unapportioned direct tax in violation of Article I, Section 2. Now, this was a pretty contested five to four decision with some vigorous dissents. And in 1913, Congress decided to take action. So this particular decision was actually superseded by the 16th Amendment, which then allowed Congress to levy income taxes without apportioning them among the states. And again, apportionment just means that each state pays according to its population.
5: And the petitioners, the challengers in this case, say the question here is whether for purposes of the 16th Amendment, income you know, that is taxable without apportionment includes unrealized wealth. Um, If that makes your eyes or ears gloss over, think about it this way. You know, let's say, hypothetically, you are some person who owns a corporation. And when the corporation makes money, you put that money back into the corporation because you're just so flush with money, I guess. Um, You know, are those corporate profits part of your income that can be taxed, even though you haven't taken that money out for yourself just yet?
2: And in a lot of cases, our tax laws actually don't tax that as income, but there are exceptions, and this case involves one of them. So, the specific tax issue in the case is from Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, passed back in 2017. That's a one time tax that offsets other tax benefits that the law also includes. So, the provision at issue here requires shareholders who own at least 10% of a U.S. taxpayer controlled but foreign corporation to pay a one time tax by including their pro rata share in the corporation as income. For For one year. And this can be paid all at once or in installments, and there are a bunch of possible deductions. So, this is called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax or MRT. And it reflects the fact that the law gave these companies benefits. It reduced corporate tax rates. It created a tax exemption for dividends from foreign corporations. But at the same time, it created this one time tax payment that was just part of the deal.
1: Now, we earlier mentioned that this case is perhaps a little less. Faxy, fact-adjacent than your typical case or controversy arising under Article 3 should be, because it seems like here one of the petitioners, Mr. Moore, wasn't just a minority shareholder who never received any earnings, but was nonetheless hit by the tax bill. Anne Marimo and Julia Weil of the Washington Post report that the Moores actually have closer ties to the company than their lawyers and their filings suggest. The Post's reporting builds on a tax notes article by Mindy Hersfeld, who's a professor of practice in the University of Florida's graduate tax program. Professor Hirschfeld's research indicates that Mr. Moore was actually a director of the company and he made a contribution to the company that was treated like a loan and for which he earned interest. He later received reimbursements for travel expenses as a director of the company and he invested an additional $100,000 in the company. So this idea that he's kind of an arm's length investor is not quite as clear based on these facts as the facts in the brief suggest. But... What are facts when there is a tax cut to be obtained? I mean, let's not let
5: facts get in the way of a good tax cut and consolidating wealth. Indeed. Um, So despite Republicans' love for tax cuts, not all Republicans are in favor of this judicial theory of tax cuts. Former House Speaker and Mitt Romney's former running mate and noted liberal squish, Paul Ryan, who shepherded the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act into law, you know, told Nina Totenberg of NPR, quote, I'm not for a wealth tax, but I think if you use this as an argument to spike a wealth tax, you're going to basically get rid of a third of the tax code. That's a big tax cut if you get rid of a third of the tax code. And Sam Alito is jamming out, I'm the tax man. Yeah, yeah, I'm the tax
2: man. (laughs) Okay, so back to the basic structure of the challenger's argument. Uh, It's really about realization. That is, they say that this is a tax on unrealized income, and they say that under the 16th Amendment, the federal government only has the authority to tax actual income, uh, which they say is income that is realized assuming that the realization issue is the question in this case and the question the court will answer, petitioner's theory could definitely cause a good deal of chaos in the tax code, as we just mentioned, Speaker, former Speaker Ryan suggests. Um, and that's because there are a lot of taxes that actually don't have realization requirements. Justice Kagan had a question to petitioner's lawyer near the end of the argument that laid out a few different kinds of taxes that could be threatened by their interpretation because those taxes don't clearly apply to just realized income as the petitioners seem to define it. So let's play that clip here.
6: So at the risk of a little bit repeating some of the discussion, um, it it seems to me that there are four principal. There may be others, but there are four principal kinds of taxation. That uh, Congress has repeatedly countenanced, and that this court certainly has done nothing to get in the way of, that you have to distinguish here. And I just want to make sure I understand your distinctions and whether there's a single distinction that sort of covers all of these or whether each one has a different explanation. So here are my four it's subpart F, it's S corporations, it's partnerships and uh, it's uh, taxing on an accrual basis. So give me why it is that you think we can decide for you without putting any of those kinds of very established taxation schemes at risk.
7: At a 10,000-foot level, Your Honor, they all hew
6: to the realization line as it's been developed in the Court's cases and by historical precedent. Um, See, I would have thought that none of them hew to the realization line. I I, I think that... I mean, that's why this is my question, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Justice Sotomayor also asked a question of Petitioner's Lawyer that underscored that this realization requirement theory could have really enormous consequences throughout the entire tax code. So let's play her.
6: You're asking us to just announce what realization is out of context. And for the last hundred years, we've been studiously avoiding doing that because we recognize that it's dangerous to do that. To to state a a word like realization, we then have to come up with a working definition that applies to every piece of property and every way in which people um, uh, gain wealth. It doesn't seem logical to me.
5: The federal government's brief arguing against this wackadoodle theory had invoked a long history of taxation that seemingly was inconsistent with petitioner's theory. As the federal government explained, as early as 1864, you know, three years after the first federal income tax, Congress enacted on income taxes reaching individuals pro rata shares of undistributed corporate earnings. The court upheld that law in Collector versus Hubbard. The brief also noted that Congress can tax, you know, partners on undistributed partnership income, and that Congress's 1913 income tax law. In included undistributed corporate earnings within certain shareholders' taxable income as well.
1: Ellen April and Donald Tobin submitted a terrific amicus brief that echoed that same theme, as did another amicus brief submitted by Reuven Aviona, Leah's colleague at Michigan, and Clinton Wallace and Brett Wells. And in that brief, they explained how, quote, non-realization rules are essential to prevent tax sheltering and to create a level playing field for all taxpayers, end quote. And the American Tax Policy Institute also weighed in to echo that same argument. So these are some real lightweights. They don't really know a whole lot about tax, but they are coming in to endorse the government's position that crediting the petitioner's realization requirement theory would have broad consequences for tax law writ large, even if it would have great consequences for billionaires with offshore corporate tax interests.
5: And as ever, there's very big too important or whatever slash running away from your argument energy in this case on the side of the petitioners, the challengers. So during the oral argument, some justices, as well as the United States, in both the argument and their briefing, you know, said that the petitioner was just coming up with nonsensical distinctions with other taxes on unrealized income in order to avert the true implications of their theory. You know, another great amicus brief by the Tax Law Center and NYU and Professors Ari Glogauer, David Kamen, Becca Kaisar and Darian Chansky gets at this idea.
2: But it is actually possible the court just isn't going to answer whether the 16th Amendment has a realization requirement. And that's because, as the government pointed out, there's no dispute here that there was income realization. It was just to the corporation. So the real question is whether Congress can attribute that realization to these 10% shareholders and the court's cases, if those matter anymore, big if. Big uh, if. Big
6: if.
2: If they do, though, they do seem to make clear that you can make that kind of attribution.
1: And Justice Alito asked Solicitor General Preylogger, what limits there were on Congress's ability to attribute realizations by one entity or person to another, leading to this exchange, which we just had to highlight. Just a part. So So your answer
7: is that there need not be realization by the taxpayer. It's sufficient if there's realization by some other entity correct?
3: Under the 16th Amendment, that's correct, although there is a due process question in that context about the limits on Congress's ability to attribute income that was realized by one taxpayer to another taxpayer. All right,
7: that, the due process question, and that's a question of substantive due process.
3: That's how this court has analyzed it in cases like Burnett v. Wells, where it was looking at the limits on Congress's ability to make that kind of attribution decision. And-
5: I think Sam is learning not to worry and love substantive due process, don't you? (laughs) Right? This is going to be his... It grows grows on on you.
1: It grows on you.
5: (laughs) You just start
1: loving that liberty and you just want more of it. Indeed.
5: Mm. Um, We would be remiss if we didn't play Solicitor General Prelogger's fantastic explanation about why the U.S. taxpayers are the natural people to pay these taxes on the realization by foreign corporations. So here is what she said there. I think the MRT, like many pass through taxes, is equally
3: constitutional. Here, the income has never been taxed at the entity level, and there are real complications with trying to tax foreign corporations directly. So in many respects, these large U.S. shareholders, who by definition together collectively have a majority stake in a closely held corporation, are in many senses the most suitable person or entity to tax. My friend himself suggests that in thinking about these issues, the court should focus on the potential for tax avoidance or tax abuse. And I think that that concession just underscores the point that when you are using a foreign corporation, it provides a ready vehicle to shelter funds offshore Keep them out of the reach of U.S. taxing authorities and thus complicate efforts to access those funds, even when they have a really significant connection, as they do here, because these companies are majority owned by U.S. taxpayers. And it's important to recognize, too, that this case is not the paradigmatic case of how the MRT applies. The overwhelming majority of taxpayers subject to this are domestic corporations, often parent companies of wholly owned foreign subsidiaries who have arranged their affairs to be able to keep this money offshore to a period of long tax deferral.
2: Maybe because Justice Alito is a glutton for punishment or maybe because he always thinks he's going to get the better of anyone and sometimes fails. Um, he tried to play gotcha with Solicitor General Prelogger and he did that in some revealing clips that we wanted to play before commenting.
7: One of your uh, the arguments that you press most strongly, and certainly it has resonated a lot in the coverage of this case, is that the adoption of the petitioner's Arguments would have far-reaching consequences, isn't that
3: correct?
2: That's correct. I mean... In case anyone is skeptical that media coverage of the court matters or actually believes the court when they say they don't pay attention to media coverage, Sam makes very clear that absolutely they do. He sure does, but I think they all do, and I think that's a reason that it matters a great deal that we all keep on them because, you know, he's reading this stuff.
5: Oh, my God. He has a Google alert for Samuel Alito. For For sure. sure. He makes his clerks come into chambers every morning and hate reads the Internet with them. I mean, that is definitely. Definitely part of the job, as far as I can tell. Or maybe they clip out all the clippings for him and present them to him right. like, on a weekly dossier that he
1: reviews. As they assemble his burn book.
5: Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, A bit more on this, kind of along the lines of what you were saying, Kate. You know, the Wall Street Journal opinion pages had an absolutely unhinged, hysterical editorial accusing progressives of turning Moore into a tax Armageddon by warning of the consequences the Morris theory would have for the tax code. And the journal goes on to say, you know, but the justices aren't going to adopt the theory. So you all were just being, you know, the boys and really the girls. Cassandra's crying wolf. Um, And of course, they simultaneously urged the court to adopt the theory that could spell doom for the tax. But never mind that. Um, But the thing I wanted to say is if the court upholds this tax, it does not mean people were wrong to warn about the consequences of this theory or the challenge. You know, for one thing, it's possible the court just won't answer whether there is a realization requirement in this case, leaving tax Armageddon for another day. But, you know, for another, if the court adopts the sensible construction of the tax code, whether in this case or a later one, there's no doubt in my mind, that's partially going to be because people were warning about the utter bedlam that endorsing the Moore's theory would portend. So it's another example of how checking this court requires people People to put themselves on the line to stick their necks out to warn of the consequences and if or when those consequences don't materialize those people are still kind of the heroes not the people saying there was nothing to worry about
2: they are the heroes and it's important that they not take the lesson that oh well i guess i was too spun up about something right. and shouldn't have been and next time i'll hold my fire like that's the wrong lesson
1: keep firing
2: <laughs> yeah and it's also and also just on the journal like. this is some like hysterical liberal fever dream that this case would have these far-reaching consequences, the petitioner's own cert petition, which we just talked about, really belies that characterization. They were like, take the case because it's so wide-reaching and consequential. So it's pretty revisionist to say it's just liberal commentators who take that view. There's
1: so much laziness in this Wall Street Journal editorial. I mean, first of all, tax Armageddon when there is the perfectly acceptable portmanteau taxageddon available to you. Laziness. Absolute laziness. And then are you volunteering to be the journal's public editor, Melissa? I'm just saying you need an on butts person. I have done this before. And I mean, you could have done more like you're you're resting on your conservative laurels. Like you could have been a little more creative. That's all I'm going to say.
2: Among many critiques of that op-ed. <laughs> that, that is that is correct. Okay, so back to Alito and Prelogger and that exchange. So after getting Preloger to concede that, yes, of course, consequences are relevant, Alito proceeded as if he thought, aha, I've got you, because you're talking about the implications of the Moore's theory. So now I can ask you about the implications of your theory and whether it would allow Congress to enact all these horrible taxes that, as we have already made clear— aren't currently law, will probably never materialize, but Sam Alito is nevertheless going to speculate about. So let's play Black
5: Santa! <laughs> <laughs> Tis the season.
2: <laughs> so do you
7: think it is fair then to explore what the consequences of your argument would be?
3: I'm happy to talk about the consequences of our argument, although I, I want to say at the outset, I think that the court could resolve this case quite narrowly.
1: Narrator voice, Justice Alito did not, in fact, get Solicitor General Prelogger.
2: And in fact, he never gets (laughs) Solicitor General Prelogger. I mean, he's... There's a real Charlie Brown football Yeah. This this time I will. Nope, nope, not going to happen.
5: She's always Lucy. Um, Neil also decided to be fantastico, just as he was last week, insisting that the federal government had not, in fact, made an argument that... They certainly did seem to make. So here is this exchange.
7: But that argument that this taxpayer had that kind of enjoyment isn't in the briefs before us. And Does, I'm just wondering, what do I do about that?
3: Well, I think we did that make that argument because we made the point that to the extent the Court goes down the road of recognizing some theory of constructive realization, then the MRT would fit within that same framework because petitioners haven't identified any actual distinction between how those other tax contacts operate and how the MRT operates.
7: Let's, let's just say I don't see that argument then what do you want me to do? Am I supposed to vacate and remand if, 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 if for, for consideration of that question? Is it waived? You know, what, what would you have me do?
3: I, I, I certainly think that in our brief we argued that here the taxpayers can properly be held accountable for the, the corporation's income and that the court could I say got that.
2: Back. I got that argument. I mean, Neil, if you can't find it in the briefs, how about we help? Should we do some should – we, should we help point him towards the proper excerpts? Let's do that. It's the
5: giving service. season, right? <laughs> exactly. Time time to be charitable. Here, here's a little gift under under your tree, Neil.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. So in, in, in that spirit, uh, page 41, quote, as petitioners do not dispute, the MRT targets income that the CFC itself has plainly earned. And when a CFC has earned income, its 10% shareholders have earned a corresponding accession to wealth and economic gain.
1: And not to be outdone, there's more under your tree, Neil. (laughs) On page 42, quote, far from being unreasonable or arbitrary, the MRT fits comfortably within Congress's consistent practice of taxing individuals on their shares of undistributed business earnings. The MRT, like subpart F, applies to U.S. owners of 10% or more of a CFC's shares. Under the MRT and subpart F alike, those persons are taxed on undistributed corporate income, irrespective of whether they have the power to force the corporation to make a distribution." End quote.
5: Happy holidays. Uh, (laughs) Happy holidays. Um, One other note on Neil's participation in this argument, he also tried to play gotcha with Solicitor General Prelogger. It went about as well as it did when Sam tried to play this game, because when Solicitor General Prelogger would say, but there was realization here, he would follow up with, aha, so you're saying realization is necessary. And she'd patiently explain, no, Neil, I'm saying it's not necessary for you to decide whether realization is required, since realization Exists here. Realization is sufficient, not necessary. It's called logic. Look it up. Real dads, bras, and chaz energy from Sam and Neil during this case. I thought.
2: Here's where I confess I still haven't read the Taylor profile. I think that's that that was that reference.
5: It is. Um, good catch. So other thoughts on the argument. It seemed to me like Justice Kagan is readying herself to launch a comedy tour. Um, That and she is willing to pointedly call back to some of her colleagues' more outlandish questions to draw out the obvious answers to them. So we'll play some clips of that here.
6: Here's one. Justice Gorsuch said uh, you were asking us to overrule 100 years of our precedent. Sounds bad. Are you? (laughs)
3: I am not asking the court to overrule any precedent in this case. I'm asking the court to follow its precedent uh, that postdates McComber and makes clear that the discussion in that
5: case was limited to the particular type of stock dividend at issue there. It's almost as if she's saying, like, O'Neill, oh, now you don't like overruling precedent and you're concerned with it, but also they're not even asking us to overrule precedent, you dolt. I liked it. I like Zero Fox oh, Elena Kagan. <laughs>
2: And there was more. So she did basically the same thing with an Alito question. So there was that was the line of questions that we actually just talked about, where he tried to play gotcha with Solicitor General Prelogger and exploring the implications of the government's theories. And Kagan had something to say about that too.
6: And then um with respect to the furthest the implications of the furthest reaches of your argument. That Justice Alito was asking about. And you said with respect to a number of taxes, which we'll probably never see in our lifetimes, but you said if we did see them, you would probably defend them. I mean, when you say that, that's your job, right?
3: Yes, we generally defend the constitutionality of statutes.
6: Yeah. So, um, so how should we think about that set of possibilities?
3: Uh, So I think the important starting point is to recognize that those are hypotheticals, as you mentioned, that are unlikely to ever come to pass. There's a really good reason that Congress frequently chooses to tax based on realization, and it's the administrative practicalities of the situation. Otherwise, it's... So... That's
1: more money, many problems for Sam and Neil, who were very sad that they weren't going to be able to take a hatchet to the tax code, or at least not the kind of hatchet job they would like to do to make the world safe for billionaire interests.
5: (laughs) Maybe just them, right? It it did seem that way.
1: Other people seemed a little more (laughs) circumspect. Well, I mean, could he really talk about this? (laughs) (laughs) Be clear. (laughs) Um, he kept a pretty low profile, um, but I, I, it does
2: seem there like was, they... there was a o- slightly awkward moment at the beginning where this realization kind of discussion, definitional discussion. And there was sort of a mention of forgiven loans um, <laughs> it sort of hung. It sort of hung in the room, I thought. Uh-huh. Maybe that's why he sort of kept a low profile in this argument.
1: I think he sort of slunk to the edges, chastened <laughs> a little. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it. it yeah. They've got 99 problems, but a tax cut ain't one. Yeah. So there we are.
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.
5: Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian Nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org.
0: For over 130 years,
7: McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive, take over taco night.
1: to Billionaires Week at the court. In addition to more money, no problems, the court also heard Harrington versus Purdue Pharma, which, as we've mentioned before, also involved hella rich people.
5: I'm sensing a theme in the Supreme Court's docket. I told um, you, it's
1: Billionaire's Week. Yeah.
5: It's uh, like Shark Week. Right. <laughs> um, so this case is the federal government's challenge to the bankruptcy settlement between Purdue Pharma and the many individuals and entities with claims against Purdue related to Purdue's distribution and marketing of OxyContin and the resulting opioid crisis.
2: Okay. So this case arose as follows. Uh, By now, people are probably familiar with Sackler, the Sackler family, and their company, Purdue Pharma, and its aggressive and misleading marketing of the painkiller OxyContin. The human stakes here are just kind of beyond comprehension. Um, As the federal government's brief makes clear, between 1999 and 2019, nearly 250,000 people died of opioid overdoses. And that and and many of the related effects of This epidemic have given rise to many tens of thousands of lawsuits. So by 2007, Purdue and several top executives had agreed to pay over $500 million in fines for misleading marketing, which they continued to do. And also between 2008 and 2017, the Sacklers withdrew over $10 billion from Purdue, paying something like 40% of that in taxes.
5: And with a bunch of lawsuits against Purdue, there are over 3,000 claims against Purdue at issue in this case. Purdue filed for bankruptcy and sought restructuring in 2019. The bankruptcy court approved a settlement and restructuring deal. The Sackler family agreed to contribute $6 billion to that settlement.
1: This $6 billion came after the family withdrew $10 billion from the company. Indeed. Just right? Yes. Okay, just checking. (laughs) Notably, the individual members of the Sackler family are not parties to the bankruptcy proceedings in the sense that they themselves have not filed for bankruptcy. Still, a condition for the bankruptcy plan is that they are to be personally released from any liability related to OxyContin, which means that their personal wealth is protected. And again... Ostensibly, some of this personal wealth might be derived from some of the funds that were withdrawn from the company between 2008 and 2017. Yes? Perhaps. Anyway, leaving that to the side for the moment, the bankruptcy settlement plan is actually incredibly popular. A majority of the claimants voted in favor of the plan, which would distribute millions of dollars to victims of the opioid epidemic, as well as municipalities and states to deal with the aftereffects of the opioid epidemic in those jurisdictions. And it was approved by both the district court and the court of appeals, which relied on a provision in the bankruptcy code that says a plan may include any other appropriate provision, not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of Chapter 11.
2: But the federal government, and in particular an entity within the Department of Justice known as the Bankruptcy Trustee, basically a watchdog for bankruptcy proceedings who was appointed by the Attorney General, then intervened and said the court didn't have authority to release claims against the Sacklers, who were not themselves declaring bankruptcy. The federal government warned that basically this whole agreement could paved the way for massive end runs around tort liability as rich individuals would escape liability by taking money out of a company. The company would then go bankrupt. The individuals could escape without having to pay out claims by basically holding payouts hostage, contingent on a court releasing individuals from liability. Justice Jackson really brought this out at oral argument. So let's play that here.
8: But you define necessary, as I understand it, as anything the Sacklers require. Oh, not at all. all, So what does necessary mean in your view?
2: Well, in this case, what the bankruptcy court found was that without the releases, without the settlement that came in,
8: um, the, the company would liquidate and victims would receive nothing. Only because the Sacklers wouldn't give the money back, right, under those circumstances. They are, they are conditioning their willingness to fund this estate on the releases. That's correct, Your Honor.
5: Plus, the individual members of the Sackler family got a release for certain claims like fraud that they couldn't have gotten released just by virtue if they had filed for bankruptcy, and several justices also brought that up. So the question that the
1: court is answering is whether the bankruptcy code gave the bankruptcy judge authority to approve this plan, extinguishing the Sackler's personal liability. And here's a rough cut overview of the argument, or at least some parts of the argument, because we're not going to include clips for all of this. But the chief justice wanted to know why the federal government wasn't invoking the court's major questions doctrine.
5: I don't know, John, because this case doesn't involve an administrative agency making rules, and also that doctrine is totally made up and bullshit. You know, the major questions doctrine does not stand for the proposition that a party can just, like, wave it around whenever they say someone is doing a big thing. No, it does. This is the
2: new major questions doctrine. The major questions
1: doctrine is basically like a little black dress. You can pull that out and wear that shit everywhere. (laughs) It works in every occasion. I see.
2: Can I say something in seriousness? Is John Roberts okay? That question was... (laughs) so weird. It was – Curtis Gannon, who was arguing for the federal government, just kind of took it in stride and was like, well, no, we're just going to do normal interpretation here. He didn't say, are you out of your mind? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you could have brought – what about federalism? What about sovereign immunity? It's literally a completely unrelated and irrelevant doctrine. And Roberts just threw it in as though it were relevant. And I was for a moment worried about him.
1: Well, I I actually thought this was kind of a mean girls moment. Like – like Gretchen Weiner, like stop trying to make the major questions doctrine Yeah, happen. I agree. It's not going I agree. to happen. I agree. But he was like, I think I I think it could
5: happen. And he, he was pretty committed. And to Curtis that. Gannon was like, no bitch, stop. It's not it's never gonna happen. It's never going to happen, Gretchen. Yeah. Um but it it wasn't just the chief, because Justice Kavanaugh also asked about the major questions doctrine and Greg Gar, <laughs> who was representing Purdue Pharma, was like, Go touch grass, Brett. It's not relevant here. Like What are you thinking? Justice Thomas suggested the
1: fact that the parties could agree as to a release of these claims against the Sacklers suggested that the bankruptcy court did have the authority to release the Sacklers without consent. And Justice Kavanaugh sort of piggybacked on this, suggesting that bankruptcy courts have been doing this for decades. And indeed, there are a lot of big law lawyers who I think would agree that this is just how restructuring works in the context of mass tort litigation. People take money out of the company, reducing the res and then getting released from liability on a personal level. And the bankruptcy just is the way that you handle mass liability for
2: mass torts. Alito wondered what would happen if the Sacklers' individual money was untouchable or unreachable and whether this kind of agreement might be the only way to get that money to help pay claimants.
5: And that seemed to be gesturing at, like, the equities and practicalities of the case, um, which Justice Kagan repeatedly referred to rather explicitly in these clips we'll play here.
6: It's overwhelming, the support for this deal. And among people who have no love for the Sacklers, among people who think that the Sacklers are pretty much the worst people on earth— they've negotiated a deal which they think is the best that they can get. I mean, your position rests on a lot of sort of highfalutin principles of bankruptcy law. But another highfalutin principle of bankruptcy law is you're supposed to maximize the estate, and you're supposed to do things that will effectuate successful reorganizations. And it seems as though the federal government is standing in the way of that as against the huge, huge, huge majority of claimants who have decided that if this provision goes under, they're going to end up with nothing.
5: And as those clips and, you know, Justice Alito's question and I think Justice Jackson's question earlier as well suggested, like, these arguments had an odd feel to them in that the justices, really all of them, were quite focused on and willing to talk explicitly about the equities in the case we
1: kind of noted that that would likely be the case when we talked about this case in our term preview that you know the equities the whole idea of fairness for those who had been wronged in this entire opioid epidemic would be something that would concern the justices and justice jackson floated something that suggested that maybe the release of non-parties would be allowed in some cases, but not necessarily in this one, given that the assets that the Sacklers hold privately are assets that actually came from the company. And this was the whole point I was making earlier about them withdrawing some of the funds from the company before it proceeded to bankruptcy. And so let's play her here.
8: But even if they could be authorized, Mr. Gary, as you said at the beginning, why would this be an appropriate situation to allow it? So Justice Kagan says they're not putting all of their assets on the table but my understanding is that not only are they not doing that but most of the assets we're talking about were originally in the company and that they actually took the assets from the company which started the set of circumstances in which the company now doesn't have enough money to pay the creditors so even if there was a world in which categorically we w- we wouldn't say you can never do these kinds of releases why wouldn't this be a clear situation in which we would not allow it
5: so if those justices wanted to think about the equities of this case, um, Neil Gorsuch had a different idea for how to resolve it. So here is how Neil Gorsuch wanted to resolve this case. It's what was the,
7: that case from the 1600s? T- the, the Tiffin case. Tiffin, from 1600s, Tiffin, that's right.
2: Where the Court of, of
5: Chancery enjoined third parties, yep. suits against third parties. Quite fantastico. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to pod explain something to you, Neil. If you want to know whether the modern bankruptcy code authorizes a particular kind of settlement in this massive tort litigation that involved a quarter million people dying and massive, fraudulent, aggressive marketing of a deadly drug, I'm just not sure that invoking the Tiffin case from the 1600s and the Court of Chancery is the way to do that. I don't know.
2: You're missing the deep points he's making.
5: (laughs) I see, I see. This was an
1: odd aside from our favorite textual healer. I mean, like, I would think the bankruptcy code would get him super excited, like, you know, parsing the bankruptcy code. And instead, we were taking all the way back to the star chamber.
5: He can't remember when he should be applying textualism or originalism. Like, he knows it's one, Mm -hmm. but it's difficult for him to, like, keep the true kind of sorted into their proper categories.
2: I do think that whether because of the Tiffin case or not, uh, Gorsuch (laughs) is leaning against approving this plan, right? He's leaning, I think, towards siding with the federal government. Maybe Jackson, too. Maybe, Um, yeah. But I think probably the rest of them approve the plan under these circumstances, even if they're worried – Broadly speaking, about immunizing some private parties, I think that this is a unique enough set of facts, partly because of yeah, yeah. The, uh, Melissa, the factual right. components that you've been bringing yeah. out, that they could cabinet and yep. approve this settlement here. So I think that's yeah. my sort of soft prediction.
5: Yeah, same. Um, So one other argument the court heard this week in Muldrow versus City of St. Louis about how to establish unlawful employment discrimination under Title VII. The plaintiff employee in the case was transferred, she says, because of her sex. The Court of Appeals said that transfers don't necessarily establish employment discrimination unless you show the transfer imposed some adversity on you, like less pay or less convenient working conditions. The plaintiff says that's not required since she didn't want the transfer, She says the new position is less prestigious, even though it has the same rank and pay. This case
1: is sort of unusual because I think there are two very different coalitions pulling for the petitioner here, Jitania Muldrow. So the obvious group behind Jitania Muldrow are civil rights lawyers who have focused on the case because Valid workplace discriminations are often dismissed in court because of the requirement that plaintiffs have to prove that they were actually injured or harmed by the employer's actions. So, Jatanya Muldrow, who is supported by the Biden administration, maintains that Congress never intended to impose such a requirement regarding job transfers in Title VII. And so, civil rights lawyers are all over this and supporting her for that reason. But interestingly, also supporting Jatanya Muldrow, or at least deeply interested in her prevailing here, are those who are opposed to workplace DEI efforts. and. As they explain, a broad ruling that employees need not establish that they were injured or harmed by their employer's actions could open the door to a flood of challenges to workplace DEI initiatives like mentoring programs or training programs for underrepresented groups. And they note that so-called reverse discrimination complaints, which have become more common since the Supreme Court overturned race-conscious college admissions in SFAA versus Harvard, These could all be channeled through a wider window if Title VII is interpreted to no longer require the plaintiff to show injury or harm. So suddenly all of these kinds of claims could come through. And so given that this case provides an opportunity to build on Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and to dismantle diversity in the workplace, it was perhaps unsurprising that the court's discussion quickly devolved into a debate about affirmative action in the workplace.
2: And here's how that came out at argument. So right off the bat, Justice Kagan seemed to express some concern that petitioner and the federal government's theory would be used to support such claims and that they were top of mind and of real concern to her. So let's play that clip here. Are you saying that all discrimination is
6: stigmatic injury? Like, no. I, I mean, because you started with, you know, making people worse. I mean, there are differences and distinctions that people can make on the, on the basis of protected characteristics that make people better off, right? I mean, if, if I decide one day that you know every woman in my workplace should get a raise, I
8: mean, that makes women better off. Right. And that is correct.
6: And then
5: Justice Jackson echoed that concern as well.
8: I guess I'm inviting you to think about discriminate against um, as Justice Kagan was positing it, you know, she's she's highlighted a distinction between discrimination against someone that injures them versus discrimination that might not injure them.
5: And it
1: seems that both Justices Jackson and Kagan were right to be concerned because there is a whole 63 conservative <laughs> supermajority that is apparently foaming at the mouth to allow Title VII to be used to take down DEI efforts. So, First up was Amy Coney Barrett.
5: But are you saying then if the employer wants to increase diversity in the workplace and so promotes, say, some black employees and they get better jobs, then that's discrimination?
7: Uh, that opposes, uh, I want to answer that question, but I, I also want to say that that is, is not posed by this case. Of I
3: understand course, I that, but it know, seems I, to me the answer you just gave Justice Kagan would logically apply to that situation. Well, it,
1: To be very fair here, Brian Wolfman, who teaches an appellate immersion clinic at Georgetown University Law Center and who is arguing on behalf of the petitioner, really did not seem to want to be the one to present the vehicle for challenging workplace DEI measures. So he really urged the justices, as you heard, to stick to the four corners of this case. But what are four corners when you could just blow through them and eviscerate DEI measures? So... With that in mind, our favorite woke warriors, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, also wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they, too, stand for workplace equality and against diversity, equity and inclusion. Here they are.
7: I would say that all disparate treatment based on race, sex, etc. is uh, uh, wrong. Can you have discrimination uh, that is perceived by someone who is, uh, say, you say that uh, this is law enforcement and we need in this particular precinct more black or Hispanic officers?
1: And so you are moved
7: or transferred because of race
2: so glad they cleared up where they stood on that, really.
1: <laughs> like we did not know. I know. <laughs> like we were so confused about where yeah. Justice Thomas was on workplace DEI. All at the edge of our seats. <laughs> it's...
2: So there were also a couple of points in the argument when the justices started talking about separate bathroom requirements and grooming requirements, and I was having so much Bostock oral argument PTSD, I don't know about the two of you.
5: Yeah, Yep. for sure. Melissa, kind of along the lines of what you were saying, it felt like during this argument, the justices... Like, maybe Sam, Neil, and Clarence were so mad they weren't going to get to blow up the tax code and give their sugar daddies a tax break for the holidays that they were like, but please let me blow up some DEI efforts. Here's a stocking Please, stuffer. exactly. You no longer have to have women or people exactly. of color in the workplace. Exactly, exactly. Um, they're like, let, let's compromise, right? Like, we're into compromises now. This is mine.
2: What a moderate court.
5: I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We need a palate refresher, yes. a palate cleanser. Let's let's do some court culture. It was a really billionaire's week was very traumatizing. Yeah. It really was. It was it was Unless you were a billionaire, <laughs> then it was exhilarating and amazing. But if you were not a billionaire, it was very alarming. So let's do some court culture and be traumatized on a different valence, okay? All right. So first up, I would love for us to talk about some of the developments in the state courts, which is where all good things seem to be happening these days, or at least, a, again, good things is a very. There relative is some term.
2: weird shit happening right?
1: in the state courts. I mean, I, okay, you did not let me finish. I meant I, I was going to clarify that when I say good things, it is on a relative scale. Like compared to the machoines going on in the federal courts, what is happening in the state courts is comparatively better. So, quote unquote, good things. If there but is
2: good things, it's happening in the state courts, but there's lots if of. If that there, that's yeah, if good too. things
1: exist, it's yes. definitely on federal courts, probably somewhere else. Anyway. So last week, the Indiana Court of Appeals heard oral argument in a case called Individual Members of the Licensing Board versus Anonymous One. And this is a religious liberty challenge to Indiana's abortion restriction. And we wanted to highlight it because we've had a lot of our listeners write in to ask whether an expansive jurisprudence of religious liberty like the kind the court has been developing under the Free Exercise Clause could provide a way to challenge abortion restrictions. So If, for example, uh, someone was required to carry a pregnancy to term, could they then challenge that requirement by saying that doing so is inconsistent with their religious beliefs? I don't think any of us really believe that this United States Supreme Court would apply its free exercise jurisprudence in a way that would provide individuals with a way to defend against or challenge abortion restrictions. But Interestingly, some state courts have interpreted their free exercise in religious liberty jurisprudence to do just that.
2: So, one, specifically a trial court in Indiana held that Indiana's abortion ban violated the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, since the act provided for abortions in some cases, that is in cases of rape or incest or IVF or for selective reductions, um, but not where abortion was required by an individual's religious beliefs.
5: So an organization and several individual plaintiffs challenge the abortion ban. One of the plaintiffs had previously had an abortion because of a fetal anomaly and had also previously had an extremely difficult pregnancy. And she says she wants to have another child but doesn't want to get pregnant so long as the state's abortion ban could prevent her from getting an abortion where her religion would counsel her to have one, like where there is a fatal fetal diagnosis or where her life and health would be in danger. And the trial court's ruling is on appeal to the
1: Indiana Court of Appeals. And it sounded like the Indiana Court of Appeals might agree with the trial court's ruling that the state's abortion ban required exceptions under the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So here's one clip where the judge seems to be questioning the state's interest prior to viability, and that's the period of time when a fetus could not survive outside of the womb. And the judge seems to be suggesting that by requiring an individual to carry a pregnancy to term during that time, the state was requiring the individual to abide by a religious, philosophical belief about life. And that didn't count as a compelling interest the state could pursue in order
4: to burden the individual's
1: religious beliefs.
4: Where does the state derive its compelling interest in a fertilized egg?
1: So, Your Honor,
7: the state has a compelling interest in protecting that unborn child. Cheney called it even at the very... How
4: How do we get to... A fertilized egg being an unborn child. If we don't look to the Christian faith.
7: Oh, your Your Honor, this protections for unborn children have nothing to do with any particular religious significance. I think our but science doesn't
4: call a fertilized egg an unborn child. Science has different uh, ways of describing. Things as they move through development, right? So we have a fertilized egg, then you have a zygote at one week, then you have a blastocyst at two weeks, and you have an embryo at three to eight weeks, then you have a fetus at nine weeks, you have a viable fetus at 23 weeks. So the state seems to be making a leap in calling a fertilized egg an unborn child.
2: Here is another clip along basically the same lines.
4: Is it possible to get to a compelling interest for a fertilized egg without reaching to religion?
7: It is difficult your honor the the trial court found based on the evidence before it that the when a human being comes into existence is not a
4: factual question it's a question of religion or philosophy and until viability we can all agree at viability yes sure when honor. the child can survive outside the womb
5: and here's a clip with one judge suggesting that maybe the US Supreme Court says federal law doesn't care about women's health but Indiana law might
4: Actually, care about that. And let's I, let's talk about Cheney a little bit, though. Mm-hmm. You're relying on a case from 1972 mm-hmm. that allowed little protection for women until they were near death. Would you agree that society and uh, mores have changed in regard to rights for women in the last 51 years?
7: There, ha- there, there are always changes with regards to society's mores. But I think the as, as Planned Parenthood observed at page 963, the U.S. Supreme Court has, in fact, embraced the views of our predecessors
4: in Cheney, that the compelling interest in this, in protecting... But our Supreme Court didn't. In the June case, the, the Supreme Court left open the fact that our Constitution does protect women's health.
5: I feel weird saying this, but go Hoosiers. I mean, like this, I mean, this was like really a stunning argument to listen to. And of course, you never know whether the judges are actually going to rule in this way. But having listened to it, it did seem like this is where they were leaning.
2: Like yep. an even-handed application of exactly, liberty,
5: exactly. What? Don't know Shocking. her. Wouldn't Can't know her. Wrong. I focus on the <laughs> U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so wow. there's
1: a little bit of shade there. Like maybe they don't believe in right. women, but Indiana does. Exactly. Like, Ladies, bring yourselves to the Hoosier state. Actually, don't.
2: I mean, yeah, just a couple a couple of decent judges. I don't know if that's enough to, to, to warrant oh, a yeah. mass. The bar influx. is in
1: hell. The bar is <laughs> in hell, Kate. <laughs>
2: um but actually that is a you know the sort of the the drawing comparisons to the u.s supreme court is actually that is a good segue to an aloha that we wanted to extend to one of our live show destinations from last year hawaii um and that is because justice eddins on the hawaii supreme court who we were lucky enough to see when we were in town for our live show released an honestly pretty stunning concurrence just excoriating originalism. And it was so powerful that we need to read some excerpts from it for you. So let's do that now. I'll start. Quote, Enduring law is imperiled. Emerging law is stunted. A justice's personal values and ideas about the very old days suddenly control the lives of present and future generations. Recently, the Supreme Court erased a constitutional right. It recalled autonomy and empowered states to force birth for one reason and one reason only, because the composition of this court has changed. The day before, the court cherry-picked history to veto public safety legislation, disturb the tranquility of public places, and increase homicide. The same week, it promoted a conjured idea hostile to judicial restraint, the major questions doctrine. Whew.
1: Okay, I per okay. So, melody, just a little like maybe production tip. I think you should overlay ether that NAS track on this.
5: <laughs> and, like that would be amazing. Can we do that? I don't think so. Um, but uh, listeners, imagine it in your mind. Imagine it like that, that needs mm-hmm. a soundtrack. I have one too because
1: I okay. this was a diss track for the ages. Like I don't know what they're serving up in Hawaii. What is in that pokey? Because they are killing it and I throwing it down. So here's another. Another banger. Quote, when justices solicit cases to test their way against durable personal jurisdiction principles, a state occupying one of the world's most geographically isolated land masses pays attention. Time traveling to 1868 would unravel Hawaii's long-arm statute. Now, settled law easily unsettles. Some justices feel precedent is advisory. Before the court's hubristic originalist arrived, everyone got it wrong well mostly everyone see dred scott versus sanford enslaving human beings and denying citizenship based on race because the supreme court must interpret the constitution quote according to its true intent and meaning when it was adopted close parenthetical all others hall of fame jurists to 1ls held egregiously wrong-headed views only public meaning at inception counts traditional methods to interpret the constitutional are unacceptable
2: damn uh, <laughs> oh my god
5: 911 <laughs> oh i'd like to report a murder <laughs> whoa and it somehow ends like on a more hopeful optimistic note so it concludes with in hawaii the aloha spirit inspires constitutional interpretation. And then the justice quotes a Hawaii proverb that says, hesitant walks the humble hearted. And he continues, a humble person walks carefully so they will not hurt others. The United States Supreme Court could use a little aloha. I said what I said,
1: I bitch. <laughs> I
2: know. I know. <laughs> wow.
1: wow. Justice Edens. Oh, my
2: gosh. Whoo justices on state high courts, but judges and justices on all state courts, just take heed, right? Like there is no need for you to pretend that there is anything legitimate about the methodology this insane Supreme Court is using. And you can call it out, right? Like you not only can break from what they're doing, but you're certainly able to criticize them. But um, I'm not sure I've ever read anything quite that quite like that from the pages of a state court opinion. Justice
5: Dalit, you know, in, in the Wisconsin Supreme Court had a long opinion also criticizing originalism that's well worth a read. But the register in which this one is written is definitely on another level, I would say.
2: But that's right. Somebody needs to put together a compilation of The Great and yes. That's right. So Dalit's opinion and this one would be the first yep. two entries. But uh, I feel sure. like there's room for plenty more.
1: I mean, like, let's not leave out some of our favorite federal court jurors because Carlton Reeves in his Dobbs Mm. district court opinion wrote some diss tracks. Also in
5: his um, post-Bruin opinion. Yes. So both of those should go in there as well.
1: He's an MVP on the diss track scene. For sure. Um, I have to say, though, hubristic originalists, um, honestly, Fed socks. if you're not going to make a shirt out of that, you're missing an opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Now for some SCOTUS court culture. We actually got our first opinion of the term and it was an opinion in atchison hotels versus lawfer that was the tester standing case that we talked about on an earlier episode and i think we predicted this we said that there would be an off-ramp here and there was the court dismissed this case as moot noting that lawfer withdrew her complaints after her lawyer was sanctioned in other cases Justice Thomas, however, would have gone further. <laughs> he wrote separately to say he did not think that Lawfer had standing to begin with anyway. And Justice Jackson wrote separately to say that she had doubts about the court's practice of vacating, essentially undoing, lower court opinions after a case had become moot, but that she would follow the court's current practice in light of precedent.
5: Imagine we that, a justice someone who following precedent. precedent. Amazing. Very notable. And Leah, you had some developments in the Jarkeese case? Um, yes. So we did want to note that Mr. <clears> him, <throat> no,
0: no, 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 no. no,
5: Mr. Jarkeese's lawyer, S. Michael McCulloch, has updated his website. Now, we are happy to admit when we're wrong, everyone makes mistakes. In our recap of Jarkeese, we joked that... Michael McCulloch, Jarkesy's lawyer, his most significant contribution to the oral argument was providing us with the correct pronunciation of Jarkesy. Apparently, we missed the moment <laughs> when Associate Justice Elena Kagan awarded Mr. McCulloch a gold star for his, quote, sheer chutzpah in an oral argument on behalf of his clients. Don't worry. If you
1: had forgotten about that gold star moment, Mr. McCulloch's PR team did not. It immediately went into overdrive, breathlessly touting on the firm's website that Justice Kagan had acknowledged publicly Mr. McCulloch's chutzpah on behalf of his clients. And because we want to provide truth in advertising, (laughs) we thought we would, for the record, just give you a replay of exactly what she said when she credited
6: his chutzpah. What have been thought the hard cases, Northern Pipeline, Shore, Grand Financiera, Stern, oil states, these are all private people on both sides of the V. And nonetheless, we've held that public rights might be involved because their disputes are embedded in federal statutory schemes. So those are the hard cases. But we've never suggested that um, in a case where Congress has given an agency the power to enforce something and the agency is, um, is bringing the charge, if you will, uh, that, 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 you know, that that's just not, it's, that's settled.
7: Well, it's it, it settled only to the extent no one's brought it up uh, and forced this issue
6: since Atlas Roofing. In I this, agree. In this context. I, nobody has had the, you know, chutzpah, <laughs> to quote my people, to bring it up since Atlas Roofing.
5: This website edition is what we call, in the words of my people, chutzpah squared. <laughs> Cubed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to infinity. I don't know.
1: Um. Oh, like, my. Like, I, you know what? I love a man who sees the glass as half full. Like, he could have <laughs> gone home with his tail between his legs, but he's like, you know what? Elena Kagan said, I have chutzpah, <laughs> and I'm
5: going to run with it. And I good for him
1: congratulations to
2: this man
5: yes (laughs) um next week we are going to have our annual favorite things episode um so we wanted to highlight that for our listeners after that that is next week's favorite things we will be off for a week and then we are going to have a very very special new year's day episode in store for you
1: So before we go, I just wanted to remind you that last week on Pod Save America, our sister podcast, I joined the fellas to talk about the latest in Trump trial updates. So if you haven't heard that episode, definitely download it while it's hot. And we also looked ahead in that episode. And the guys also looked ahead in that episode to what Trump's second term might look like. So if you're definitely into doom scrolling, that sounds amazing. So Check that out. And they also talk about the latest chaos to rock Congress. And I believe that chaos is known as George Santos. So it's a really good episode, really rocking. So check it out.
5: Diva down. Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by me, Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. Produced and edited by Melody Rowell. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. Audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Music by Eddie Cooper. Production support from Madeline Herringer and Ari Schwartz. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you want to help other people find the show, please rate and review us. It really does help.
7: I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Cuz when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shift Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipt.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make Mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is conquer the bake sale even if you get to it last minute and craft the perfect sunday brunch
6: when it's not even sunday because with mccormick by your side it's gonna be great